0: Text this Lord's Day we'll be considering is Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 41. And our text reads as follows. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter. And James and John began to be sore amazed, and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Carry ye here, and watch. And he went forward a little, and fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The Spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh a third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. this Lord's Day in a series through the Gospel of Mark. We come to the, the agony of Christ. You see, the agony of Christ suffering the infinite wrath of a holy God for undeserving sinners did not begin once Christ was hung upon the cross. The agony of God's wrath actually began to be and to be sensible to the Lord Jesus Christ in a very real manner as he approached and as he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He began to get a foretaste at that particular point in time of the suffering that he would endure for our sins. We begin here to see, dear the agony of a gracious and merciful and a holy Christ. And although he clearly saw there in the garden the extent to which he would suffer, he did not run from the agony. He, in fact, was willing to embrace the agony. As difficult as it was, and as we shall see today, even as a sinless man, he embraced it. And he embraced it because of his love for undeserving sinners like you and me. He is willing to, to voluntarily go out and meet the agony which he was to receive. Dear ones, Christ did not come to die for the godly or for the righteous. Rather, Christ came to die for the unrighteous and the ungodly. Therefore, ones, there are none who are disqualified from coming to Christ because of their wickedness, because of their ungodliness, because of their sin or unrighteousness. In fact, we might even say that it is their wickedness, their sin, their ungodliness, their unrighteousness that is the qualification for them to come to Christ and to embrace Christ. Because Christ came not to save the righteous, but to save the unrighteous. He came not to justify the godly, but to justify the ungodly. Praise be to our Savior and our God. May the Lord open our eyes today to behold the glories of God's justice. And of His mercy and grace that are revealed in the sufferings of Christ there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we shall consider together the following three main points concerning the agony of Christ from our text this Lord's Day. First of all, the sorrow of Christ in Mark chapter 14 verses 32 to 34. Second, the prayer of Christ in Mark 14 verses 35-36 and thirdly the rebuke of Christ in Mark 14 verses 37-41 our first main point then the sorrow of Christ in Mark 14 verses 32-34 look with me again at these verses and they came to a place which was named Gethsemane And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here, while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed, and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Carry ye here, and watch. After Christ and his disciples had left the upper room, you'll recall that the Lord prophesied, as they walked most likely, that the disciples would desert him, and that Peter would even deny knowing him. <clears throat> now this, Peter and the other disciples flatly denied would happen to them. That they would actually do these things. And I would submit to you, dear ones, it was that attitude. The attitude that it can't happen to me. That proud and arrogant attitude, it cannot happen to me, that in effect set them up for all of the subsequent falls that we see in the next couple chapters. It can happen to us, dear ones. It can happen to any of us. And it is only by the grace of God that it does not happen to us, not because we are able to restrain ourselves from falling into such sins. Now the Lord and his disciples come to the Garden of Gethsemane, which lies upon the Mount of Olives, in order that Christ may be strengthened to carry out the plan of redemption for unworthy sinners like you and me. (coughs) Here we see the agony and the sorrow of the cross began to take its effect upon our Savior as he knows the time is now upon him to bear the guilt and the punishment that his elect bride justly deserved. Judas, at this very moment that Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane, is carrying out his fiendish plot to betray the Lord to those wicked religious leaders who hated Christ. Christ and the eleven disciples arrive at the entrance to the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord leaves eight of them at the entrance and takes three of them into the Garden of Gethsemane to watch and to pray with him. According to Mark 14.32. And these three were... Peter, James, and John. These same three disciples, you recall, had previously witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration the glories of Christ's deity. And now, there on the Mount of Olives, they are to witness the mystery of Christ's humanity. Then we... Read these words. And he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Well, let's consider the words used here to describe that which Christ was experiencing at that moment. First of all, and he began to be sore, amazed. Note first that it says here that Christ began at this point in time, in the Garden of Eden, I'm sorry, Garden of Gethsemane, to, to begin to experience something that he had not previously experienced, at least not to the degree that he was then experiencing it that which the Lord is said to have begun to experience was amazement, astonishment. Now this was not an amazement in the sense that one might look out into the heavens on a very dark night and see the the heavens filled with stars and be overcome with with the power and the glory of God as it beholds God's creation. This was rather an amazement that recoiled at the knowledge of the guilt of man's sin that he must bear and the knowledge of God's infinite wrath that he must experience in order to rescue sinners like you and me who were condemned to perish in hell. Here the father begins to strike his son with the terrors that he will experience in suffering for his people. Christ as a sinless man is in absolute astonishment at what your sins and my sins will cost him. That he will have to endure and bear in order to purchase our redemption. You when was the last time we were astonished at the everlasting hell that our sins deserve? When was the last time we were overwhelmed at the sight of God's infinite justice that is repulsed by the sin in your life and mine. And then when was the last time that our astonishment over the heinousness of sin and our utter unworthiness was swallowed up in the everlasting love and mercy of Christ who suffered hell in order to deliver all sinners who would embrace Him by faith alone. Everyone, shall Christ the sinless Lamb of God be utterly amazed at the heinousness of sin and at the punishment that sin deserves and we casually go on in our lives sinning and taking no account of the sins we commit against the one true living God? This is, I would submit to you, dear ones, To be astonished at our own sin is in fact the work of God's grace in the life of the redeemed to grow in their understanding of the heinousness of sin, of the punishment which our sins deserve, and of the love and the grace of Christ that would turn the blast of God's righteous judgment from us by taking upon himself that righteous judgment. Where is the wonder and the awe of this in your life and mine. Such astonishment will more quickly smite and decapitate the giant of pride in your life and mine more quickly than anything else I would submit to you. For such amazement cast us upon our face in humility before the Lord our God. The next words that we read about Christ's reaction there in the garden of Gethsemane are these he was not only amazed but and to be very heavy Christ became very heavy it says in Mark 14.33 he began to be so amazed and to be very heavy This word conveys the idea of being weighed down with extreme trouble and distress in one's soul. This is obviously not a sinful reaction in Christ, but a very righteous and holy reaction of the God-man as the weight of man's sin and the torments and agony that he must suffer unfold before his mind. Now, we all know to varying degrees what it is like to be stressed out over certain pressures in life. But there is no pressure that we could ever, ever experience in this life that would compare to the pressure and to the stress and to the trouble that Christ was experiencing at that point in time. The only stress that might in some way compare is the stress of those who face God in judgment on that last day and begin to realize that the sentence of hell faces them and they will suffer in hell for all eternity. The stress that men will face at that particular point in time. Because in reality, Christ was facing the torments of hell that God would pour out upon him and his infinite wrath his holy indignation upon his only begotten son but even Durins, that distress that one would face cannot compare to Christ's distress for Christ Durins, was sinless he was more Distressed by sin than a sinner can possibly be distressed by sin he was holy and blameless with regard to sin and he did not deserve God's infinite wrath whereas those who stand before God's judgment on that final day and prepare to meet that sentence of torment in hell do deserve it Beloved, when you feel stressed out in your lives due to sin or due to the pressures of this life, there is one who knows, there is one who knows about stress and upon whom you may cast all your anxieties and all your cares because he cares for you and he shows he cares for you because he is willing to suffer the infinite wrath of a holy God in order to purchase you unto himself. Does that not encourage you when you are stressed out, when you face various sins in your life, temptations in your life, to come to Christ and to cast it all upon the Lord, knowing that that he cares for you and he will sustain you. He will grant you the grace to persevere. The grace to trust him, even when it appears that, that you have not the strength to trust him any longer. He is the one to whom we look. He is the one who gives the trust and grants the trust. And so we look to him to fulfill this. The third thing that we notice concerning the reaction of Christ here, he says, "My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death in mark 13:34. There was an immense sorrow and grief in the human soul of Christ that would even itself seem to carry Christ away to death itself if the Father did not intervene to comfort and sustain him, to lift up his his frail and weak humanity at that particular point in time. The cause of this extreme sorrow was again the terror of God's infinite wrath that he was about to endure and to face. Dear ones, let us never be so foolish to think that because Christ was God, that he did not suffer as a man incomprehensible miseries of soul and in body. Listen to the words of Isaiah in chapter fifty three, concerning the suffering servant. Isaiah fifty three, verses three through five. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did not yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. He carried and bore our griefs and sorrows. They became his grief and sorrow. But we esteemed him not we rejected him. We turned our backs upon him just as the disciples did in his moment of desperation, in that moment in which he was uh, at his weakest state. We turned our backs upon him. I'm sure death, dear ones, at this point in time in Christ's life would have been a welcome relief to the sorrow that he was bearing and would bear but even greater sorrows would Christ experience in subsequent hours as he hung upon the cross if there was any doctrine that either minimizes or denies the humanity of Christ minimizes or denies the suffering of Christ and the work of redemption on the part of Christ to save sinners Let us never trivialize, minimize, or deny the deity of Christ, as do the Jehovah's Witnesses. But neither let us never minimize, let us never trivialize, and let us never deny the humanity of Christ, as uh, does the Church of Rome. In their doctrine of transubstantiation, where they present an omnipresent human body of Christ. That is not true humanity. A body is not omnipresent. And so, it in effect does minimize one's view of the humanity of Christ. That if he was in fact, as he offered to his disciples the bread and the wine before he was crucified, If his body was omnipresent and they were eating his body and his blood at that point, then he was not truly a human being. And he could not truly suffer in our place and carry and bear the guilt and the punishment for our sin. I ask you, dear ones, do the sorrows of Christ over sin cause you to sorrow over your own sin if the master sorrowed shouldn't the student sorrow or sin however is not the end of our salvation and we should not simply wallow in sorrow and grief over our sin infinitely continuously but if we do not mourn over our sin Jesus says we will not be comforted Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted, Jesus says in Matthew 5.4. Beloved, we may not know consciously the grace of God's fatherly forgiveness in our life if we do not know the sorrow over sin. Because we are comforted and we enjoy the forgiveness of God in direct proportion to our understanding of how we deserve the infinite wrath of a holy God and how Christ has rescued us from the guilt of our sin and the punishment that we deserve. What do you have to rejoice in doings if you do not realize what you have been delivered from What do you have to be thankful for if you do not realize what your sins deserve? And it is coming to that knowledge that brings us to rejoicing and comfort. Someone may ask at this point, is Christ our example to follow when we face death? Should we face death with such extreme sorrow and grief as Christ faced it? How is it that many of the martyrs had such joy at the time of their death? And Christ had such solemn grief at the time of his. Dear ones, Christ faced the terrors of God's infinite punishment in his death in order that we might never have to face those same terrors. The sorrows of Christ are absolutely unique and cannot be followed by us because Christ endured the sorrows of sin and hell. We need never experience those sorrows, for we have been delivered from those sorrows, praise be to his glorious name. The Christian may then rejoice because of Christ's sorrows. He may even be able to rejoice by God's grace as he lies there on his deathbed passing from this life into the next because Christ sorrowed and grieved. Our second main point is the prayer of Christ. In Mark 14, verses 35-36, there we read, And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. We come now to consider briefly the passionate prayer of the Lord, which he uttered in the Garden of Gethsemane. Having left Peter, James, and John, the Lord walked a short distance about a stone's throw according to Luke twenty two forty one, and sought the comfort and strength of his father to sustain and support his human nature which was so weak and frail, to support and to strengthen him from being entirely overwhelmed to the point of death by the grief and sorrow he was experiencing. Again, we find another remarkable evidence of Christ's sinless humanity in the prayer which he poured out to his Father at this point in time. For Christ prayed that if there were possible the hour of his suffering, the infinite wrath of God might pass from him. Now, the Lord did not pray this prayer because he believed it was possible to alter or to change the eternal decree of God as it related to the salvation of unworthy sinners. Nor did he pray this prayer because he was having second thoughts about saving sinners from the curse of sin. He prayed this prayer to demonstrate to us how much his holy nature, his holy human nature, recoiled at the guilt of our sin and how much his holy nature was overwhelmed with agony. Of becoming the bearer of God's infinite wrath on behalf of man. If Christ would have gone to the cross laughing and smiling, we would have reason to question, I believe, his humanity at that point. We would have reason to question the severity of what he was about to suffer if he went laughing, joking, smiling. However, the prayer of Christ Makes it very clear that his suffering was nothing less than the infinite judgment of God that was upon him. The Lord faces the torments of a holy God for the sin of undeserving sinners who hated him and blasphemed him in every conceivable way, and he submits himself to the revealed will of God made known in many passages of the Old Testament, such as Psalm 22. In Isaiah 53. And he submits to the providential will of God as well in suffering at this particular point in time. Dear ones, there is no virtue in suffering for suffering's sake. We are not ascetics. We are not masochists who delight in pain and suffering as ends in themselves. But if suffering must be endured for the sake of Christ and according to the revealed will and providence of God, we too can pray, not my will, but thine, be done. In fact, it is our duty, dear ones, to seek to avoid suffering if possible. This is a righteous desire and consistent with the sixth commandment to avoid suffering wherever it is possible. We are to preserve our life. We are not to run headlong into suffering for suffering's sake. However, if we must suffer in this life, let us submit to the revealed and providential will of God knowing that God will use our suffering to draw others unto Christ. He will use our suffering to conform us to Christ and He will use our suffering to prepare us for heaven where all pain and suffering will be forever removed. Although we ought not to rejoice in suffering for suffering's sake, we ought to rejoice, on the other hand, that we have been counted worthy to suffer for Christ and His truth. And when it comes to suffering for Christ and His truth, If that's what it brings, then we must be willing to count the cost to lay down our lives and to suffer anything else not giving up on one truth that God has revealed to us in his word. And God, as we look at this passage of scripture, we see that God reveals in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, the intense agony it was manifest in Christ there in the garden of Gethsemane. There we read concerning Christ's agony. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground whether we interpret these words of Luke the physician to mean a literal case of hematendrosis (coughs) that is the sweating of blood which apparently is documented in medical history in rare situations where one is under extreme mental and physical agony or whether we interpret the words of Luke to mean a figurative case wherein Christ sweat was as it were great drops of blood. The agony of Christ's humanity is clearly portrayed here with brutal honesty. God did uphold, dear ones, the weak humanity of Christ by sending an angel to strengthen him according to Luke 22, verse 43. One wonders what might have happened (coughs) to the humanity of Christ. I mean, obviously the decree of God cannot fail, but it was that means that God used in sending an angel to minister to his humanity, to uphold him during this very weak time of our Lord. And dear ones, if God supported Christ in the midst of his most severe trial, the Lord will not abandon you when you are severely tried. He will send his power either by the strength of angels. He will send his power and encouragement through brothers and sisters in Christ. He may even send his strength to encourage you through a non-Christian. The Lord is not limited doings by any means. He may send his his strength and encouragement to uphold you by various circumstances which He may work in your life that reveal his love His care, His protection, His power to save you. He may reveal and show and demonstrate His strength to uphold you by the means of grace which He has given to us, His Word, the promises in His Word, through prayer, even as Christ poured out His heart to the Lord and was strengthened, even so, This may be the means that the Lord uses to strengthen us as well through his sacraments, through fellowship. But ones, the point is he will sustain you. That's the point that we need to, to see here very clearly. He will sustain your soul in the midst of the fiery furnace or in the midst of the lion's den are in the midst of the presence when you stand before that great giant. He will sustain you. He will not let you fall, utterly fall. He will not let, allow your faith to be utterly cast away. He will uphold you. For Christ, your great high priest, who knew the strength and the comfort of God and his trials, Prays for you every moment in heaven that God's grace would be supplied to you in your trials, just as He prayed for Peter, that Peter's faith would not fail, even though Peter denied the Lord. Our final main point from our text this Lord's Day is this the rebuke of Christ. Mark 14. Verses 37 through 41. Wherein we read, And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wished they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The Lord Jesus desired the support, the encouragement, of his disciples as he faced that suffering that awaited him. But Peter, James, and John were overcome with their own weaknesses, their weariness due to the lateness of the hour, their sorrow over Christ's approaching death, and they drifted off to sleep as the Lord needed them to watch and to pray. Christ had prophesied that Judas would betray him that the disciples would all abandon him, that Peter would deny him, and now Peter, James, and John fall asleep when the Lord desired their support and encouragement. Three times the Lord went to, pr- went to pray and three times the disciples fell asleep. Three times Peter denied the Lord and three times Peter slept. Instead of praying to be delivered, from that very temptation that the Lord had prophesied would come upon him. And that is why Christ rebukes his disciples and rebukes us as well. With the words we find in Mark fourteen, thirty eight, watch and keep on watching, literally. Pray and keep on praying lest ye enter into temptation. You see, this is not just needful once in in just the big trials of life. This is needful at all times to help us before we face the big trials, the big tests of faith. This is why the Lord says to his disciples, even before the trial had arrived, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Dear ones, even our mere desire and willingness to pray will not keep us from the temptations of sin if we do not subdue the weakness and the frailties of this body. We cannot say, well, I meant to pray to overcome sin and temptation in my life, but circumstances just did not work out, or or the frailties of my body kept me from praying that I enter not into that temptation. Dear ones, there is no substitute for watching and praying over our own soul and the souls of others. Now, I know this doesn't mean that we are to consciously be watching and praying 24 hours a day. But this should be still a characteristic that when we have the moment to be able to reflect, when our mind and our thoughts are more in, in a at a time where we're not having to concentrate upon our vocation or upon something, that there should be periods of time throughout the day that we are in effect watching and praying over our soul, praying that God will sustain us and help us in regard to that next temptation that we will face, praying that the Lord will deliver us, It is certainly not our prayers that save us or deliver us from the clutches of sin or the clutches of temptation. It is God alone who is our deliverer. Prayer does not reveal our own strength. Prayer does not reveal our own faith. It reveals our own weakness to deal with sin. It reveals our weakness. We would not need to come to God in prayer if we were as strong as we ought to be or as we think we should be or as we often think we are. We would not need prayer. But because we are weak, because we are frail, we need prayer. We need that fellowship and communion with the Lord Jesus. And prayer, dear ones, though it reveals our our lack of strength, though it reveals our weakness, it reveals the power of Christ to forgive sin and to crucify sin in our lives. And therefore, Christ taught us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you desire to be delivered from evil in your life? Do you find yourself flirting with temptation to sin in various ways? Seeing how close you can, as it were, get to the edge, of the boundary, looking down the chasm to where you might fall if you fall into that sin? Or do you find yourself seeing the chasm and saying, God, Deliver me from that. I do not want to see how close I can come. I want to see how far I can stay away from that particular temptation. Do you run to a temptation or do you flee from temptation? The Lord says that we need to watch and pray that we enter not into that temptation. We must earnestly call upon the Lord to deliver us both from the evil and from the temptation to do evil. If we should pray as we ought to. For the third time, <clears throat> the Lord comes to his disciples and he rebukes them with a note of sarcasm. I would submit to you that this is spoken with a, in a spirit of sarcasm. Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. The Lord is not actually telling His disciples that they may now go to sleep with His blessing. That is in effect saying, you have now slept sup- away your opportunity to prepare yourself for the hour of temptation that is about to come upon you. You've slept it away. Dear ones, let us see that we can as well sleep away those precious opportunities to prepare ourselves for temptations and trials that will severely test our faith. We're all too often ready to come to the Lord when the severe trials and temptations come our way. But how often are we as ready to pray that God will sustain and uphold us and not lead us into that temptation before the trial comes our way? <clears throat> Peter and the other disciples were not prepared to face the trials that lay ahead of them because they did not watch and pray. The Lord Jesus was prepared to face the trials that lay ahead of him because he did watch and pray. In closing, <clears throat> the rebukes of the Lord dear ones, demonstrate the weakness of these disciples. But do they not even more demonstrate the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who was going to the cross to suffer and die for these very same disciples who could not stay awake to watch and pray with him as he faced the terrors of God's infinite wrath? They could not stay awake. They were weak and frail and succumbing to weariness and sorrow. For the Lord Jesus loved these same disciples and carried the burden and the weight of their sin upon himself, even to the cross, and purchasing these unto himself. Does this account that we have just read not show us our own unworthiness to be saved by Christ because we are those very disciples? We are those disciples who are weak in the body and fall asleep during times of prayer. We are those who do not prepare ourselves as we ought to in temptations that would face us. However, dear ones, it is Christ, and it is always Christ who is our righteousness and our obedience and who is faithful to us in spite of our unfaithfulness to him. It is Christ's love for us and not our love for for him that saves us. It is Christ's obedience and not our obedience to him that has saved us. It is Christ's prayer for us and not our prayers to Christ that has saved us. Let us receive by faith, dear ones, an all-sufficient Christ. In spite of all of our sins and in spite of all of our weaknesses, Let every sin and weakness in our lives, dear ones, become not an excuse and reason to flee from Christ, but let every occasion of sin and temptation in our life provide the occasion to flee unto Christ, who is able to help and to sustain us, and who desires and wants us to come unto Him, who even commands us who invites us to cast all of our cares and our concerns upon Him. Let our sins, dear ones, become the qualification in our lives to come to Christ. Not our righteousness, but our unrighteousness. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank Thee for Thy Word today, which has shown us the glories of Christ's humanity, that He was truly one of us, though perfect, though sinless. O Lord, we see the infirmities of the body and the flesh and of the soul that are revealed in the sufferings of Christ there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee for revealing these things to us for we know that here is one who can carry and bear our sin because he was a man, but he was a sinless man. Here is one whose human nature was upheld even by his divine nature so that he did not sin. Here is one, O Lord, who has experienced more than we will ever experience and who is willing and desirous of coming to our aid as our faithful High Priest, who sympathizes with us in what we suffer here upon the earth. O Lord, we pray that all of these truths would bind our hearts to flee to Christ and not away from Him. Father, forgive us for the many weaknesses of our flesh, sinful weaknesses. Wherein, O Lord, we have turned away from thee. Wherein we have not counted the cost. Wherein, O Lord, we have sought our will rather than thy will. O Lord, we pray that thou would forgive us, that thou would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, And Lord, again, we cast ourselves upon Christ, who is our righteousness, and who is our forgiveness, and who is our life. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need.